I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello, I'd like to welcome you back to the Radical Love podcast. And uh, on this week's show, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, In a lot of the previous programs, we've been talking about this notion of radical love and uh, probing some of the stories and teachings from the great mystics um, of the Islamic tradition and other traditions, um, of the sacredness of love, and how the love of God leads us to the love uh, for humanity. On this week's podcast, I want us to do um, something a little different. And that is to take seriously this notion of how radical love leads us to a kind of deep and passionate concern for the welfare and well-being of our fellow human beings. I want to talk a little bit about how love leads us to justice and a concern, a passionate concern for justice so that you know that you got to do something and if you don't do something, then the rocks are going to cry out. And I want to have that conversation by talking about the life and legacy of one teacher in particular who has shaped so much of my own life. And this is the late and great Vincent Harding, um, someone who is known to some, but probably not by enough of us. And I thought that um, talking about uh, Vincent Harding, or as a lot of us know him and lovingly call him Uncle Vincent, might be a really beautiful way of looking at the kind of engaged action that comes out of this commitment to love. Uh, And it comes at home, and it comes all the way around the planet. And I wanted to do so by uh, sharing some parts of my own 
story and upbringing um, and the ways that my um, seeking and my spiritual yearning and mystical aspirations and my concern for the people who find themselves at the moment weak, weak and vulnerable, um, how these two concerns reveal themselves as, as one, not as um, two separate concerns, but as two sides of the same struggle, if you would. So, uh, like a lot of other um, folks, other friends, uh, perhaps some of you, um, I had grown up uh, reading many of the important passages in our scriptures. And, um, you know, we certainly see this in the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, and in the Quran, um, where we're constantly reminded that we should not oppress immigrants because we ourselves were once immigrants. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, cruel to refugees, uh, for we ourselves were once refugees. The book of Exodus in the Bible has this. Um, we're told in Leviticus uh, that we have to love, love the immigrant. Um, not put up with the immigrant, not tolerate the immigrant. Love is the divine commandment, right? Um, but the stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as the one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, Levit Leviticus 19 tells us. Uh, Deuteronomy goes further in a way that should really send uh, shivers down our moral spine. It should be awakening the core of our being. Um, it says, Cursed be anyone who deprives the refugee, the alien, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow of justice. And all the people shall say, Amen. That's in Deuteronomy 27. Um, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we says, um, Be not forgetful to entertain the refugees, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Um, and I think for a lot of us who uh, look to our social imagination, our moral action in this world, uh, this isn't separate from our spiritual yearnings and ambitions. Um, I think if we've read um, the very first public sermon of Jesus, we know that um, in the Gospel of St. Luke, in the fourth chapter, we're told that when he came to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up, and he was given the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to give good news to the poor. To the poor, Jesus declares his message above all to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. My God, what does that have to do with us today when we've got two and a half, three million people in the prison industrial complex to heal the blind and to let the press go free. Right? So from the very beginning, right, the message of Jesus, the message of the Hebrew Bible, the message of Muhammad in the Quran, where we're told to worship none but Allah, to treat with kindness the parents, the orphans, the poor and the needy, um, that these are some of the constant parts of our teaching. And, um, and I want to bring us closer to our own day and age. Uh, as a young man, I used to have two bookshelves in my room. Uh, one of them was 
the extraordinary love teachings of many of the mystics. There were Buddhist texts and Hindu texts and Jewish texts and Christian texts. And there was a lot of Sufi texts, mystical texts from the Islamic tradition with so much beauty and wisdom. And my other bookshelf, well, that was anti-colonial discourse and there was Marx and there was Foucault and there was Edward Said um, and there was Du Bois and Cornel West and so many other great masters. And there was Malcolm and there was Martin Luther King. Uh, there was Ella Baker. And I kept trying to figure out how these two were going to combine into one. How it would be that we would see our mystical yearnings and our political desire, our social and moral desire for justice in this world, that the poor would be taken care of, that the hungry would be fed, that the naked would be clothed, that the homeless would be given a roof over their head, that the bombed would be free from the tyranny of war, that dignity would be restored to all, that we would see these as part of our moral and spiritual struggle to become one as a human community. So as I engaged in a lot of this work, I looked to luminaries, and it's one thing to look to Rumi and to look to Muhammad and to look to Christ and to Amos and the Buddha, but I also wanted to have people closer to my own age, people whom I could see on TV, people whom I could listen to on radio and figure out what does it mean to live this kind of love today, here and now. And of course, like so many people, I turn to Martin Luther King as this great devotee of love, as this great beacon of radical love. And like a lot of other people, I started out with his I Have a Dream speech, and that moved me and it inspired me. I, too, dreamt of a world where our children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Oh, but the one that moved me, the one that inspired me, the one that shook me because it spoke to me so clearly was when I read Martin's speech on the Vietnam War. Uh, this was the controversial speech that Martin gave on April 4th, 1967, in Riverside Church in New York City, where after he had already won the Nobel Peace Prize, after he had already worked in passing civil rights legislation, after he had been invited to the LBJ White House, after he was proclaimed as the Moses of his people, a reluctant Dr. King came to connect together the oppression and the injustice imposed on African Americans here in America with the injustice of war in Vietnam imposed on the Vietnamese. On April 4th of 67, Martin stood on the altar of Riverside Church and spoke these words. He said, I have come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I found myself in full accord when I read the opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. Martin goes on to say, Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy 
especially in times of war. Some of us who've begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. And we must rejoice as well. For surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of his religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. King's prophetic and political words were not met with approval. The New York Times issued an op-ed talking about the king's error. And the Washington Times and Life magazine and every other outlet in the country called him a demagogue and someone who was repeating communist propaganda some people, in an even more blatant racist disregard, said to King, Stay in your lane, preacher. They said to him, You talk about race and leave foreign policy and these difficult matters to us, meaning white people. Some of the outlets talked about how King had, and I quote, outlived his usefulness to his people. And the FBI, which spied on King, which wiretapped King, said that he was the most dangerous Negro in America, using the language of that day. A year to the day from when King gave the Riverside Church speech, he was shot and killed outside the balcony of room 306 of Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. There's little doubt that the lack of popularity and support that King received in the last year or so of his life had everything to do with his stance on the Vietnam War. King's speech, 51 years ago today, speaks to us Today, it was in the context of this speech that Martin went on to challenge us to say, and let me read again here from his speech. He says, We have to have loyalties broader and deeper than nationalism, and which go beyond our nation's self defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless for the victims of our nation, and for those it calls enemy. Uh, probably the most controversial line of the speech was when King said that he would never again raise his voice against the violence in the ghetto without speaking against what he called the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today our own government. Being a preacher who loves to name things and list things, King talked about how he feels like the soul of America was a danger, that we were in danger of dying, our soul was dying, and if the soul of America dies, the, auto the autopsy, the autopsy, of our soul was going to come back as war. That war killed the soul of America. And it was in this speech that King talked about the need as a nation for us to undergo a radical revolution of values and that we must move from a thing-centered society to a person-centered society. 
He talked about an evil giant triplet that was crushing the soul of America. And this evil giant triplet he named again as racism, materialism, and militarism. Racism, materialism, and militarism. So often in those days, people would come up to him and say, Dr. King, aren't you concerned that you're hurting the cause of your people? In fact, the NAACP itself issued a decision saying, uh, we should be a civil rights organization. We don't need to have our most prominent leader issuing opinions on foreign policy. And King only had one response. He said, I'm greatly saddened because it shows you that you've never really known me. And in fact, I'm not sure that you've really known the world in which you live. And then he went on to say the part that for us is of utmost importance because it brings love to bear for justice. He said, I'm not sure that you've ever really known Jesus. Because do you not know, and of course he's speaking this as a Christian, that the Father sent the Son to die, not just for Americans, but for all of us, even those whom you call enemy. That the Father, God, in that Christian context, sent Christ also for the people that you have dismissed as the enemy. That to call yourself a person of faith means that you have to be equally concerned about the welfare, the well-being, and the dignity of fellow human beings who are on the other side of a political conflict. Now, reading this speech and later on listening to it, it moved me, it inspired me, it led me to shape and reshape my moral and my political imagination. Over the years, I went on to teach this speech to thousands of my students. And here's a reminder of how life is a journey in learning, and this is bringing us to... Vincent Harding, Uncle Vincent. Uh, I always thought that this was Dr. King's speech. I thought King went up on the altar of Riverside Church and he spoke these words. And this was King's speech and he got him killed eventually. Um, and I won't uh, hide my own <laughs> ignorance. I think I was searching something, looking up a quote or a picture or something on Wikipedia um, not exactly the most rigorous and scholarly of all sources, where it said, oh, the Riverside Church speech was written by not Martin Luther King, but rather by his close friend and associate, Vincent Harding. And I was like, well, who is this Vincent Harding? I've never heard of a Vincent Harding. So I clicked on that link, and usually when you click on the link of someone, it says... They were born in such and such a day, and they died in such and such a day. And since we're talking about the era of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and people who died, or rather more properly were killed in the 60s, I expected Vincent Harding to have joined them sometime in the 1960s. It gave his birthday, but there was no death date. And I stared at this page with some confusion. There's no death date. There's no death date. He lives. The person who wrote the Riverside Church was still alive. So I started searching him. Who is this person? Where does he live? Well, it turned out that he lived in Denver, that he was retired, but working at a Christian seminary, still leading a project called Veterans of Hope by doing oral history collection of the surviving members of the civil rights movement. So, in that way that some of us are known to write um, gushing 
fanboy and fangirl letters, uh, as a grown man, as a professor of religion and spirituality and social justice, I wrote the ultimate fanboy letter to Vincent Harding. Um, I think it said something like, Dear Professor Harding, you don't know who I am, but I'm a Muslim child of Brother Martin, and uh, his speech, your speech, the Riverside Church speech, it has shaped me, it has made me into who I am, and what I've tried to stand for in my life more than any other document. What you wrote 50 years ago has shaped my moral imagination. Can I please come visit you? Can I please come be with you? Send. Before I had any chance to remove my utter fanboyishness, I hit send and boom, it was gone. And then I sat there uh, with a little bit of um, uh, embarrassment. And lo and behold, a few hours later, I got a response back from Vincent Harding. Um, And he said, can we talk? And he gave me his phone number. And I called him. And I said, um, hello, uh, Professor Vincent, Hardy, Uncle Vincent. And, and he laughed. Um, and he addressed me in that way that for all the years that I would know him, he would always call me. Um, and he said, and this has um, left such an imprint on on me and on on my imagination. Um, He said, My dear nephew, son, brother, and fellow struggler in the cause of love and justice. Uncle Vincent spoke in a very measured tone. Uh, He meant every word that he said, and it would take him a while to get out his words. Uh, Every time I was with him, it reminded me that I, and maybe you, maybe so many of us, live in a world where we are rewarded for being, quote-unquote, quote, quick-witted. Uh, It's this ability to think fast and speak even faster, and for some of us, tweet even fastest, which is taken as a sign of intelligence. And Uncle Vincent reminded me that there's something else that's also a possibility. It's where your words come out of a lived experience where there is a truth to what you say and a lifetime of insight that you distill into these carefully chosen words. My dear nephew, son, brother, and fellow struggler in the cause of love and justice. The rest of the conversation was equally memorable. I asked him that I could I come visit him. I told him that I come from a tradition that says that real wisdom is always transmitted face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart. And I would love to come and sit at his feet. And he said, please come. And I looked for the next flight to Denver, four-hour flight from where I lived in North Carolina to where he was in Denver. And I had a chance to go to his office. Piles of papers, recordings, books, manuscripts. Um, He was a gentle man, a giant man, and he moved with the dignity of a noble person. That first conversation, he did a lot of listening, and even though I wasn't a young man, uh, compared to him, I was about half his age, 
It was an unlikely friendship. Uh, I was perhaps 40, maybe a little bit less. He was close to 80. He came from a Christian background. I am a Muslim. He is black. I'm brown. But both of us have this shared commitment to this shared tradition of love and justice. Um, We recognized one another. And there was tenderness, and there was love, and there was respect. And in that first session, I did a lot of talking, and he did a lot of listening. And I, this was still in the age of Obama, um, which in retrospect, those seemed like wonderful days that we all miss, um, certainly compared to where we are as a human community. Um, but I didn't want to make the mistake of thinking that the whole world is different because of the one person in a position of supreme power. I still cared about Guantanamo. We talked about that. We talked about drones. Uh, our country's usage of drones in multiple countries and the death of thousands of innocent lives in those countries troubled my soul so much. Our lingering wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the number of casualties there, the suffering of our own soldiers, um, the loss of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, that could have gone, should have gone, to bolstering the infrastructure of our schools and our hospitals and the care for our babies and our elderly. And it was going to these war machines which were not making us any safer and they were killing brown people on the other side of the planet. Uh, We talked about all of these. And Uncle Vincent listened. And he listened. And then he said, and I've remembered this, he said, again, as he always did, my dear nephew, son, and brother, I listened to your talk carefully. Your political critique is spot on, my son. But make sure you always link your critique to a message of redemption and transformation for all. He put his hand on my hand and said, Critique injustice. Critique injustice. But always end on the side of hope and love. Hope for a better tomorrow for all of us. Remember that there is an America that has never been and yet must be. As time went on and I got to read almost everything that I could find that Uncle Vincent had written, it became more clear to me how this was so much at the heart of what he stood for. Such a beautiful voice of love, so steeped deeply in a love tradition that for him came out of the Christian faith and for me came out of the Muslim faith and yet brought us together into this concern for justice. Justice for all of us, the possibility of hope, the possibility of redemption, and of transformation of our world's order. As I got to read more of what he had written, I got to learn a lot more about how consistent he was in this message of redemption, which included the redemption 
of us in this country and folks around the planet. I learned that the America that Harding spoke of was not the America of the Founding Fathers, or not some bygone era that has to be resurrected. Right? This is not about making America great again. We cannot be great until we're good, and we're not so good right now. We're not so kind right now. We're not so loving right now. We're not so just right now. But I think this is one insight that Uncle Vincent has that many people who are drawn to the message of social justice, including myself, would do well to keep to heart. For Uncle Vincent, America is an idea that has not yet come to be. It is a promise that has been constantly betrayed. It is a dream imperfectly realized, and yet, it's still breathing. It's still possible. It's still within our grasp. One of the last books that I read of him is one called Hope and History, Why We Must Share the Story of the Movement. And it's as much about hope that most prophetic quality, right? We read in the Bible, go back to your prisoners, go back to your fortresses, go back to your fortresses, O you prisoners of hope. Go back to your fortresses, O you prisoners of hope. And the subtitle of this chapter is, Is America Possible? The land that never has been yet. The land that never has been yet. And in it, there's a specific homage to that blackboard of Harlem, Langston Hughes, and Harding sings along with Hughes, Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, and yet must be. Right? Uncle Vincent reminds us that it's easy to throw up our hands in disgust and sadness, desperation, anger and resignation, and say, America never was America to me. As Langston Hughes also said, But we also have the responsibility and the hope to add. And yet, I swear this oath, America will be. America will be. Oh, as I as I think about Uncle Vincent, um, I'm remembering he had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, one time he insisted that we meet in a kosher Jewish deli. And he thought it was hilarious to have this black 80-year-old Christian man and this 40-year-old brown Muslim man sitting in a Jewish deli. And he laughed and he said, isn't America wonderful? Um, and he told me something that, um, again, it made me just search for a pen in my pocket and scribble down something on a napkin. Um, At that time, I was teaching a whole course on the history of the civil rights movement. And we studied Martin, and we studied Ella Baker, and we studied um, Stokely Carmichael, and the Black Panthers, and Malcolm X, I thought I knew a little something about the civil rights movement, mind you. And Uncle Vincent said, you know, Martin and I never talked about the civil rights movement. And I was like, you what? (laughs) 
he said, Martin and I never called it the civil rights movement. And I was like, you didn't? But I teach a course called the history of the civil rights movement. And he said, no, my dear son, we always called it the freedom movement. He said, to be more precise, the black-led freedom movement. He said, that's why when I went to Africa and I saw black people rising up against colonialism, yearning to be free, I saw their struggle and our struggle as one struggle. He said, when I go to Palestine and I see Palestinians who are rising up to be free and they want the same rights as Israelis have, I recognize that they are participating in the same freedom movement that we were struggling for in the 60s. And this was again the point that has stayed with me. He said, there was no matter of internationalizing our struggle. It was simply the recognition that we were fighting for freedom and they are fighting for freedom and our struggles are one. Such a powerful, powerful insight. There's also a kind of generosity in that, as Desmond Tutu has also talked about, Uncle Vincent also talked about, all of us are wounded healers. It is not the case that some of us are whole and complete and we have to go about somehow saving others. No, all of us carry scars, whether it is the scars of personal, relationship, emotional, financial, economic, or political scars. And it's the very same people who find ourselves being wounded, who are called to be healers. And we don't have to be perfect. Uncle Vincent, at some point in his book, addresses the language is gendered. Later on, he would expand the brotherhood language to brotherhood and sisterhood. But at this early point, he said, my flawed and wounded brother hero my flawed and wounded brother hero. Oh, I thought he was writing that for me as I saw the wounds in my own heart and then as I become more aware of some of my own shortcomings, my own flaws. But we are still involved in this task of being healers. He asks, are we in a place without healers? No. Are we in a place without healers? No. This task of love, of radical love, calls us to be healers of one another. And he refuses to give up hope. This work of love is grounded in a kind of hope. He says, the work of humankind has just begun. Right? We're still learning. We're still learning how to have a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democracy. And God knows in this country, in Europe, in Asia, in so many places around the world, we as God's children, we as human beings, are still learning how to live together, how to hold one another, how to say to each other that I don't just tolerate you, I honor you in the fullness of who you are, as you are. And I want you to have the same rights and responsibilities as I do because we are stronger together. 
Uncle Vincent ends some of his books by reminding us, and here he's addressing our own country folk, America is possible. America is necessary. America is coming. Right? This is far from a kind of America first, thumping your chest mentality. He's imagining a new America, an America that has yet to be, but must come, an America grounded in love, in justice, and in humility. He was the one who always reminded me to go back to our foundational documents, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. And he would always pause and say, how grateful am I that this document does not speak of a perfect union. He said, because we have not been perfect. We have never been perfect. We are not perfect. We will not be perfect. But we're striving to become a little more perfect than we were before. And if we want to have a more perfect union, we begin by establishing justice. The very last talk that Uncle Vincent gave was on April 4th of 2014. Of course, April 4th was a powerful day for Uncle Vincent. It's a powerful day for me. April 4th was when Dr. King stood in Riverside Church and delivered the speech that essentially Vincent Harding had written word for word. April 4th marked the full emergence of Martin Luther King into this controversial champion of anti-colonial, anti-militaristic critic of American warmongering. April 4th was when the love commitment of Uncle Vincent and Brother Martin led them to struggle for global justice. And April 4th, a year later, 1968, is when Dr. King was shot and killed and taken from us. April 4th is the day that shaped my own mystical, moral, and political imagination. So it was on April 4th of 2014 that Uncle Vincent and I shared a stage in Denver for the last public talk that he ever gave. And it was a talk about Vietnam now. In it, we specifically connected together the legacy of the Riverside Church speech then, in 67, to the so-called War on Terror and America's war against Muslim-majority nations in our age. And we began where our podcast is now. I started out by pointing out to the people in attendance that all that we mean by justice is love when it comes into the public square. That all that we mean by justice is a recognition that we love our babies and we recognize that other people on the other side of the planet love their babies just as much. And that we should never do to other people's babies what we wouldn't want to have done to our own. That if we want food in their belly, a roof over their head, and dignity in their bones, that other people want the same thing for their babies. And Uncle Vincent nodded in affirmation and he said, yes. And remember, my dear son, nephew, and brother, 
that just as the same love moves outward and manifests as justice, it also moves inward and shows up as tenderness. It's the same love that shows up as justice that also leads us to tenderness. That if we claim to live in this radical love, to pursue this kind of justice, then we also have to be embodiments of tenderness. That if we claim to be radically just, radically loving, then we also have to be tender towards those in our vicinity. There's no such thing as bulldozing and abusing the people around us just because we think we stand for some kind of radical love, radical justice. I'm going to end our conversation today with one of the reminders from Uncle Vincent. He wrote a book about Brother Martin, Martin Luther King, called Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero. And the very last quote in that book is from June Jordan. And this statement became famous, perhaps, during the inauguration of President Obama. Uncle Vincent was aware of the fact that there's a temptation when we're looking at someone like Dr. King, or even like Vincent Harding, to put them on a pedestal, to say these are the ones who are going to come and guide us and shape us. And Vincent always wanted us to return the focus to our own standing. He said, we can't sit back and celebrate Martin Luther King and ask, when will there be another like him no, no, my dear young friends, we must join our voices with that blessed poet, June Jordan, and demonstrate that we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. So as I bid you farewell, my friends, on this podcast about how radical love shows up outwardly as justice and inwardly as tenderness. I leave you with the seed. You are, we are, the ones we have been waiting for. Let all of us wounded healers go forth and bring some healing to ourselves, our families, our communities, this nation, and the whole planet. Blessings be with you.